The vultures of India showed us how we're all interconnected after farm chemicals started to kill them off in the 1990s. It's kind of like if all the garbage guys go on strike, that's what happened. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Mira Subramanian reveals how India's natural world is in a crisis and what we're all learning from it. And in the Ukraine, Holly Morris met a group of grandmothers who insisted on moving back to their homes near the site of the world's worst nuclear accident. They lived through Stalin, they lived through the Nazis, and when Chernobyl happened, you know, they were unwilling to flee in the face of an enemy that was invisible. And Don Anahid McKean tells us what she discovered as she followed the journey her grandfather took when he narrowly escaped the Armenian genocide. It was one of the most incredible moments of my life to find this clan and to be able to thank them for saving my grandfather's life. Come along for a particularly fascinating ride. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. It's the darndest thing. The radioactive landscape around the infamous Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Ukraine is home again to a small sisterhood of very determined grandmothers. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Holly Morris introduces us to what she calls the Babushkas of Chernobyl. And she explains how they defy the odds to live out their days in one of the most toxic places on Earth. Miraseb Romanian investigated the environmental problems India faces in trying to feed more than a billion citizens. She tells us about the people she met who, one by one, are finding solutions to feeding a growing population, and at the same time, they're cleaning up the damage the natural world has suffered. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with the story Don Anahid McKean has uncovered about her grandfather's survival during the Armenian Genocide. Starting on April 24, 1915, and for eight years after that, upwards of a million and a half ethnic Armenians were systematically deported and killed by Ottoman authorities. As a journalist, Don wanted to find out how her Armenian grandfather managed to survive. In 2006, after locating the journal he kept during that time, Don was determined to retrace his journey. It led her from Istanbul to the Euphrates and into pre-war Syria, where he encountered kindness that saved his life. Uncovering this extraordinary story is the focus of her book called The Hundred Year Walk. Dawn, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. Dawn, how do you describe the, the horrors that happened to the Armenian people just over 100 years ago? Yes, it was in 1915 during World War I, and basically... The Ottoman government accused the Armenians of siding with the enemy, which were the Russians at the time, and deported them from their homes in the name of self-protection. What ended up happening was it became an extermination. And my grandfather was around 29, 30 during the war, and his family was swept up into this. Hmm. And how many people were killed during this? It was more than a million, and the population of Ottoman Armenians was about two million. So the Ottoman government recognized the uh, Armenian minority within what is today considered Turkey as uh, sort of uh, sympathizing with uh, Russia, and Russia was the enemy during World War I, and they just decided to wipe them all out. Is that right? Yes, they 
they spread a lot of propaganda that they were dangerous, and it, it basically comes down to a very small number of people, a few bad apples, and the whole population being vilified. And the result was a diaspora where the Armenians just um, who weren't killed were um, scattered around the world, and there are Armenian communities in America and other countries to this day? Yes. After the war, those who survived, either their their hometowns were wiped out and they couldn't return, mm-hmm. or they returned and it wasn't welcoming for them, or they just they were deported to different areas, such as um, what's now modern-day Syria, and survived the massacres and ended up staying there. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of what you saw as the Syrian-Armenian population. There was a pretty thriving population before the war broke out there. Are you part of the Armenian community? I, my father was Scottish-English, and my mother is Armenian. And so I grew up kind of in straddling both worlds. Right. And so, of course, I have a lot of family, Armenian family. Mm-hmm. But I grew up with these stories about what happened to my grandfather through my mother. She passed on mm-hmm. to me from a very early age what happened to him you know, just with over our bowl of Cheerios and mm-hmm. telling about her father walking across the desert and barely surviving. And so I grew up with these stories. These stories stay with you, basically led me to quit my job in New York as a reporter, leave everything, my friends, my life, and move back to Los Angeles and to tell this story. This is such a, a rich story, and, and you write that my grandfather left a roadmap to his life. All I had to do was follow it. Tell us about uh, your journey as you set out to travel through Syria and Turkey to retrace the, the footsteps of your grandfather, and, and what was that like, and how did that contribute to writing the book A Hundred Year Walk? Well, it was a life-changing trip for me, Rick. My grandfather left his journals, which we translated from Armenian into English, and I set out to travel alone across Turkey and into Syria to follow. I mapped out exactly where he went, and I took his a translated version of his journals with me. And so I traveled alone, but I was really traveling with him in a sense because I would go to a place where he was, and then I would read from his journals, and I would look out, look at the land where he was, and and look at it through my lens as a modern traveler, but also look at it through his eyes, through his words. It sounds like it was a meticulous journal. The way you write, it's like you were there with him. Have you thought about what drove him to to chronicle his struggle and his whole story so vividly? He believed he survived in order to tell his story. And I also, one of the gifts of his journals was that I... I Got to know my grandfather long after he died because he died when I was a child. So I, I didn't know really what his personality was like. And I just thought of him as a survivor, you know, someone who survives a genocide. But the thing that a genocide or a Holocaust does is it erases it. He became defined to me as just this survivor who went through this horrible thing. But when I got to know him through his journals, he was extremely meticulous and had an amazing memory, which my mother also has. He wrote down the the amount of money in his pocket, the names of people in the caravans alongside him. He wrote down where they were from. He wrote down dates. And so as a reporter, as an investigative reporter, I was able to take all these clues and follow them. There was one man who survived from the same massacre as him. I knew that because my grandfather ran into him towards the end of the war. So I knew he survived. So 
I searched so many different countries to try to find this man's writings and find out if he wrote about that same night, and I did find it. I found it in an Armenian newspaper published in Romania in the 20s, and I found him writing about the exact same night. So it was because my grandfather was so meticulous that it allowed me to follow his words and follow his clues to be able to expand his account. We're talking with Don Anahid Makin. Her book is The Hundred Year Walk, an Armenian Odyssey. Your grandfather had a story that is just so stirring, and it wasn't just a matter of leaving town. It was involved for him to escape this concrete effort just to kill all Armenians. Talk about how he actually saved his life. And you wrote beautifully about the Bedouin sheik that he met in Syria that literally saved his life. Yes. To me, that's one of the most powerful moments in his story, is that through this darkness, there was this just beautiful act of kindness through this Muslim Arab man, sheikh, who was very powerful in the Euphrates area in what is now Syria. And my grandfather approached him, and my grandfather disguised himself as an Arab. He had escaped from the massacres at this point, and he changed his name from Stepan to Mustafa and had learned some Arabic. And my grandfather was almost like a chameleon. He would don disguises just to try to survive. And this Arab sheikh knew who my grandfather was. He knew he was a Christian Armenian, and he said, tell me your real name. And he accepted him, and my grandfather stayed with them and lived with them and became a part of the clan and became like a son to this sheikh. And that message is so important to me, especially in these times, in this climate of distrust between people of different faiths. This message that the sheikh, who stood up to hate and accepted my grandfather for who he was, almost a century later, when I was going through his journals, this story resonated with me so much. So when I retraced my grandfather's footsteps into Syria, I really wanted to see if I could find this this clan. I didn't think I would be able to, but I did. And it was one of the most incredible moments of my life to this date is to find this clan and to be able to approach them and to thank them for saving my grandfather's life. Don Anahid Makin tells the incredible survival story of her grandfather during the Armenian genocide in her book, The Hundred Year Walk. You'll find a link about that in this week's show details. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Don, when you talk about your grandfather's time in Syria, you actually did the research yourself in Syria, where you couldn't go today safely, but uh, you went to Raqqa, which is in the news now because it's the capital of ISIS. What was Raqqa like? So Raqqa is this town on the Euphrates. It has, you know, some ruins there that are interesting to see, but in, in some ways unremarkable. But what was remarkable about the town, especially looking back, is just how harmonious it was. You know, there are Armenians there who had stayed, families of survivors who had stayed in Raqqa, built a school. I toured it. There were churches, mosques. And when I went to Raqqa, I was on the search to find the clan of this Arab sheikh who saved my mm-hmm. grandfather's life. And when I went to Raqqa, I was welcomed by a Bedouin sheikh. He was the one who took me into his home and helped me find this clan. Because I didn't have a place to stay yet, he insisted on me staying with his family, fed me dates and tea and and just the most incredible hospitality. And I think 
that it's really sad because now what's become of it, it's the opposite of what I experienced in that area. The message that they're sending out of of distrust and hate between ethnicities and, and religions, it's, it's just a complete opposite of what I experienced. Well, the true Muslim ethic is uh, to believe that a, a stranger in your community is a gift from God, a, a traveler coming in like your grandfather, would would be considered a gift from God. I've heard that in every part of Islam that I've traveled, and I've experienced that that beautiful Muslim hospitality. And you're right, it is a shame that with the extremism, that mainstream sort of Muslim hospitality gets bowled over, doesn't it? Right. And when I first found the clan, the descendants of the family who saved my grandfather's life, what they told me when they first heard that I was coming is that they thought that I was in need and they were ready to take me in. And I just think that speaks volumes to who they are. It's really sad now because these are the types of people who took in my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And now one of them, one of the great grandsons, was part of that tide of refugees who left Syria Mm -hmm. and entered Europe and is now seeking refuge and sanctuary Mm -hmm. somewhere else. Don Anahid McKean tells us how she recreated her grandfather's survival story in The Hundred-Year Walk, an Armenian odyssey. In just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll learn how he was able to escape to a new life in America. Also coming up, we'll hear another amazing survival tale of the babushkas of Chernobyl. And we'll talk about lessons the Earth is teaching us in India. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Find out why a group of grandmothers insisted on returning to their family homes around the Chernobyl exclusion zone. That's coming up in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. So far today, Don Anahid McKean has been telling us of the remarkable story of how her grandfather outwitted Ottoman assassins during the First World War and eventually was able to start a new life in America. Her book is called The Hundred-Year Walk, an Armenian Odyssey. Don, what eventually became of your grandfather? How did he he finally escape? You know, he, he escaped more than six times. He was very crafty. His father died when he was very young, so he was pulled out of school to help support the family. And so he became very resourceful at a very young age. And so it helped him kind of outwit gendarmes who were either guarding him in the caravans. He also had a very strong will to live, but also it was luck because sometimes, you know, people who perish had all that and they had no chance. And he eventually left Turkey and started a new life in the United States, particularly in New York and then Los Angeles. He was a refugee and he came here not speaking very much English at all with just a few dollars in his pocket. And at the end of his life, he had bought apartment buildings, you know, invested, invested, and had his own house. He really lived the American dream. And in fact, one of my favorite images of him is that my mother told me how he used to play God Bless America on his accordion because he was so thankful to be here. Oh, that's a beautiful image. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Don Anahid Makin. Her book, The Hundred-Year Walk, an Armenian Odyssey. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Ken's calling in from British Columbia. Ken, thanks for your call. Hello. When thinking of this Armenian genocide, 
it kind of makes me think of in the 1930s, the Soviet government of Russia did what they called the Holomador, which translates roughly to hunger extermination. A few million Ukrainians were killed during that, and it's kind of a similar parallel to this um, Armenian genocide. And there's groups within Ukraine still fighting to be recognized or having the genocide recognized and having it taught in schools. Is there a similar problem in Turkey now where it's not recognized, you can't really talk about it, it's not taught in school, um, it's not part of their kind of collective history? Yes, you're absolutely right. The Turkish government still denies that the killings could be considered genocide. And although I believe that there's been a lot of increased awareness and recognition within the Turkish populace, um, there was a, a large campaign in 2009, the I Apologize campaign. I believe that people are talking about it more now and acknowledging it. It's still a, a state-sponsored denial and for me, I believe it comes down to education. And that's what I really learned from my trip, is that it's about education. This is taught in schools, it's taught to children. Turkish people grow up with a very different version of what happened during World War I to the Armenians. But one thing I think is important is that we're now in, in the digital age where information is easily accessible. People can go online and look at the German consular reports and read. And, and Germany was an ally of the Ottoman Empire during World War I. So they can read what the Germans were saying, what's happening to the Armenians. And I think education is the key. Mm -hmm. Hey, Ken, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. You bet. Uh, Don, I, I just want to discuss this genocide issue a little bit. It's a term that was coined, I understand, in the 1940s to describe the Armenian massacre. Of course, the Turkish government denies that it was genocide. The United States has not officially recognized it as genocide. I don't think anybody denies that a million people were killed by the Ottomans because they are Armenians in an attempt to, to wipe out that community. Why do the Turks and the Armenians fight so much about this term genocide? To me, it was if there was a genocide, it was done by the Ottoman government, and that was overthrown, and, and the modern Republic of Turkey is an entirely different country. What is your take on that, that complicated and sort of never-go-away issue? I think one of the things that's most important to remember is that the people in Turkey today were not the ones who committed these crimes. Of course, the, the modern you know, Republic of Turkey did not commit these crimes. I think what's painful for a lot of Armenians is that it's not acknowledged mm -hmm. that it was a systematic extermination of the Armenians and it's not acknowledged. I think that Pope Francis described it best when he said on the 100th year anniversary that this was an open wound. This is an open wound for Armenians. And so Armenians want it to be acknowledged so they can heal. This is a big issue when we're dealing with a genocide. I know for uh, the Holocaust with the murder of six million Jews by the Nazis, a big movement in Israel and, and at Yad Vashem, the, the powerful memorial museum there, is simply to give each victim a name, to recognize what happened and, and not forget the people who were killed. And it seems like that's sort of behind, even a hundred years ago, your grandfather wanted this to be chronicled so it wouldn't be forgotten. Did you get that sense that that was his agenda? And in a way, is that your, your agenda? Absolutely. I want to give voice to those who cannot speak for themselves anymore. 
my grandfather gives voice to them through his journals, and he survived one of the worst massacres, um, which is in the Derzor area in eastern, what's now eastern Syria. And he believed he lived in order to tell the story. In his journals, one man died alongside him, and he said, tell the world what happened to us. And so my grandfather definitely was haunted by this his whole life. My mother now says it would be considered having PTSD. He also had a hard time believing that he lived. And he spent much of his remaining life writing down what he, what he witnessed. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Don Anahid Makin. Her book is The Hundred Year Walk, an Armenian Odyssey. Don, have you ever thought about if your grandfather was alive today? And if he could sit down with with that book on his lap that that you, his granddaughter, has written, what would he share with with you and and a person who's reading this book as as the primary takeaway? Well, one thing about my grandfather I think it's important, and I think it's important to remember today, is that he was not consumed by hate. And even though he, he endured unspeakable evils, he did not hate. And I think that's very important now. My grandfather would also want people to know the story of this Arab sheikh who saved his life. There was also a Turkish gendarme who stood up to the policy of extermination and saved his life, gave up his own life for my grandfather's. He was a Turkish and gave up for my grandfather an Armenian. So I think this is a powerful message. It's a message that's still important today in this climate that we find ourselves in again. And we also see that history repeats itself. And so Mm. I think it's incumbent upon us that when we see atrocities to speak out and to Mm -hmm. also do something as a world community. Don, you've done such a beautiful job in making sure that we can better understand in such a vivid way the experience and the lesson and the message of your grandfather. And I think it's good to remember his name, Stepan Miskjian. Thank you so much, Rick. Best wishes, Don. You'll find links to Don Anahid McKean's book, The Hundred Year Walk, in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Look for the notes that go with the program number 441. Some believe that their strength and determination defies even the effects of nuclear radiation. More than 100,000 people had to be resettled after the April 26 explosion and fire at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine back in 1986. The land surrounding the site remains dangerously radioactive to this day. But a group of women defied the authorities and actually moved back inside the exclusion zone to live out their lives in their family homes. Filmmaker Holly Morris stumbled onto their story while she was filming a travel show about Ukraine. She's now produced a documentary about them called The Babushkas of Chernobyl. Holly, what a story. How did you get involved in it? Well, in 2010, I was in Ukraine doing a general travel program called Globe Trekker, mm-hmm. and it was the 25th anniversary of the Chernobyl accident at that time, and uh, spent a few days filming inside the zone, and stumbled across this reality that there were people living there. I had no idea. And I think it was a story that Americans had very little knowledge of, Europeans perhaps a little bit more because of their closer ties to Chernobyl. And they captivated me. I went back a month later and did a a long print piece, an investigative piece about the unlikely community that survives inside the zone today. 
Now, these ladies must be quite elderly. Yep, most of them in their, are in their 80s. They've outlived the Ukrainian lifespan. Because <laughs> this is almost 30 years ago. Yeah, the 30th anniversary yeah. is fast approaching. You know, but when they returned, they were in their 50s, mm-hmm. generally speaking. Right. Hundreds of thousands of people were evacuated right. from the area, and about 1,200 returned inside the Chernobyl exclusion zone. They were relocated sometimes once, sometimes twice, and they kept coming back because of their fierce ties to their ancestral land. So talk about this exclusion zone. Right. Like ghost villages. Uh, yeah. What was it, it like? It's about 100 square miles uh-huh. um, in Ukraine. And it is, uh, you know, it's like there's border guards, there's patrols, there's uh, radiation detection. You have to, it's like, you know, going into the former Soviet bloc. In your work, you talk about how animals, in a sense, prefer the exclusion zone. And even though it's radioactive, it's thriving with animals. Yeah, it's become an unlikely animal refuge uh, because what has happened, it's not that radiation isn't bad and and that there hasn't, uh, you know, let me just say. it's. But hunter's bullets are even worse. Exactly. The absence of people has been more of a boon to the animal population than the detriments of radiation. Now, did the guards let you just go in because you had a camera and you wanted to document these women? Or how no, you, no. There, there's, a, there's quite a bit of bureaucracy um, mm-hmm. with the Ukraine government and the officials of the zone. So every time we were shooting, we had to, there was a lot of hoops to jump through. Okay. And uh, there are draconian radiation rules there. Basically, you have curfews. You're in at nine. You got to be out by five. You can only go to certain areas. You have a government official essentially with you at all times uh, with a Geiger counter to be monitoring if you stumble across a hot spot. And when you leave, at the end of the day, you also go through radiation checking machines to make sure uh, things are... So are are you okay? Do you glow in the dark? Yeah, no, I I hope not. Um, (laughs) You look fine. You know, what's really important is to limit your time there and to not consume the local food. In terms of the crew's local safety, we worked in teams. We tried to make sure nobody had extensive time Mm -hmm. in the zone. Now, your doc is called the Babushkas of Chernobyl. What is a babushka? Babushka is the Russian word for grandmother. Okay, so these are the grannies of Chernobyl. They are the grandmothers of Chernobyl. Did you get to know these women, actually? I mean, because they lived through a lot. They're old enough to remember the Stalin times. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's remarkable about these women. They lived through Stalin. They lived through the Nazis. And when Chernobyl happened, you know, they were unwilling to flee in the face of an enemy that was invisible. And they think... They kind of laugh, you know, they, you know, we come in filming and, you know, are scared to eat the food and, you know, we're all on red alert <laughs> and they're kind of like, oh, please have some moonshine. <laughs> you know, there is a lot of humor actually in the film and in their lives, but I, I want to say there's also a lot of suffering. It's a very difficult place to live. The women are poor and isolated and their numbers are dwindling. Mm. When I started, when I wrote that article in 2010, 11, there were 230 mm-hmm. self they called them self settlers living right. inside the zone and now there's just about 100 oh. so they're at the and radiation or not they're at the end of their lives right. and um but literally the, they are outliving the women who their neighbors who actually went to Kiev well yes i mean we talked to people i will say it's been a marginalized community and nobody has been doing mm-hmm. you know the kind of studies we might all want to read but certainly anecdotally and the medical people on site at chernobyl say, hey, you know, the people who were relocated haven't done as well as the people so, who stayed. Because it's, just, it's just remarkable that they're they're close to their home and they're living and uh, they're healthier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's about relocation trauma, which is very significant. You know, displaced peoples anywhere in the world suffer, you know, alcoholism, depression, unemployment, all these things that happen. And when you take 
peasant people out of their ancestral homes and put them in a high rise in Kiev, for example, which is what was happening, it's traumatic. And especially if you're older. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Uh, We're talking with Holly Morris. She produces films documenting the lives of courageous women around the world. Uh, You'll see her as a host on the public TV series Globetrekker. Her book is called Adventure Divas, Searching the Globe for a New Kind of Heroine. It was named a New York Times Editor's Choice book. Today we're talking about her latest film. It's called The Babushkas of Chernobyl. So, Holly, you met a lot of these women, these babushkas, these grannies of Chernobyl. What kind of personality they had? They have a very rough history. Did they have a sense of humor? What did they think of you? They have, I'd say, across the board, a great sense of humor. Um, If you see the film, you'll see that. And they like to enjoy life uh, despite all of the hardship that they have endured. You know, they are independent, resilient. They make their own moonshine. They barter with the moonshine, for example. They don't have family around to cut their wood or, you know, bring them cooking oil all the time, things like that. So the zone workers, the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone has many, many people who work there to manage the mm-hmm. what's left of reactor number four and the other reactors. And they'll say, hey, you know, uh, I'll give you some of my moonshine if you <laughs> chop my wood for me or something like that. So they're um, ingenuitive and resilient and sad, some of them. You know, it's a very difficult life. Uh, it's... I don't want to romanticize right. it. It is difficult. And, are um, they off the grid? Is there? I mean, there's radiation. Some there, of them are totally there? off the grid and now in villages where there's only a couple of people. They're basically living sort of a medieval life almost. Yes. For, for many of them, it's a subsistence right. food situation and medieval living. Some of them are on the grid in terms of having electricity. Why is it uh, only women? Where are the men? Well... The men did come back, and of the uh-huh. 1,200 people who returned in 1986 and 1987, generally, there were certainly men and women and families. Well, no one under 18. It was mostly people over 48, right. 49 years old, right. beyond childbearing age. They've died. The men generally, like many places in the world, have a shorter lifespan, but there's also complicating factors to alcohol and cigarettes and mm-hmm. general health. And then, you know, there's a lot of uh, sort of conflicting studies that are out there about the effects of radiation uh, on cardiac issues. So, you know, I, it's hard to say why it's only women, but it mostly is at this it's, point. You know, I, I think around the world, women are, in a lot of ways, they do the hard work, they hold the community together. They live longer. They're the tough ones. Have some moonshine. Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I now, think that's as good an explanation as any. <laughs> in a few years, these women will be dead, and uh, your documentary will survive. What do you hope people will take away from this? This whole You've put a lot of work into it. It's a beautiful story, but it'll, the people will be gone shortly. What's the takeaway? Well, it will record, you know, forevermore, I hope, a, a small part of... Uh, Ukrainian culture that was obliterated with Chernobyl. And that there is a regional culture there, the Polisia region, that will be preserved in this. And other people have been working in terms of music and local culture to sort of capture what went on in the villages around Chernobyl. But one of the takeaways of the film is interesting. It's not, well, the takeaway is not that, oh, radiation isn't so bad, but it is that Home is a very powerful thing. The palliative powers of home, the palliative powers of self-determination, and the connections between happiness and health. I mean, those are all powerful things that I think are the takeaway of the film. What a beautiful lesson. Holly Morris, thank you for your work, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing the film. Thank you.
You can see photos of a number of the women who live at Chernobyl on Holly's website for her documentary. It's at thebabushkasofchernobyl.com. And if you're not sure how to spell that, you'll find a web link in today's show details. That's in the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Next, we hear about the environmental lessons India's been learning lately. Mira Subramanian explains how severe pollution, a growing chasm between the haves and have-nots, and the need to feed more than a billion people are combining to force folks in India to rethink how they grow their food, treat their land, and take care of their waterways. Happy Earth Day. It's Travel with Rick Steves. After participating in a sustainable living community in rural Oregon for several years, journalist Mira Subramanian wanted to learn the environmental impact that development and population growth were having in India. India holds a special place in her heart since her father was raised in Madras, and she's often enjoyed the welcome of her relatives in that part of India. With the help of a Fulbright Nehru Senior Research Fellowship, Mira investigated the stories of people who are meeting India's serious challenges. She drew lessons from them that might even apply back in Oregon. Her book is called A River Runs Again, India's Natural World in Crisis from the Barren Cliffs of Rajasthan to the Farmlands of Karnataka. Mira, thanks for being with us today on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me. Wow, so you are an environmentalist diving into those challenges in the Pacific Northwest, but you've got Indian heritage, and you went over to India, an emerging economy, a billion people on that subcontinent. Right. What did you learn? I learned a lot, and it feels like an ongoing process of what I continue to learn, even as I take this book out into the world. I actually was doing environmental work in the Pacific Northwest, but then then slightly shifted gears um, back in 2004 when I went to journalism school at NYU. So I actually carried that direct environmental work on the ground right into the urban fray of New York City and kind of just tried to approach those complicated stories about sustainability and environmentalism into a place as dense as New York. And then that, in turn, led me to even a, a more dense place, which is India. And I felt like looking at these how India is facing population pressures colliding with natural resource limitations is something that we're all facing. We're all facing it now, and it's going to be increasingly an issue everywhere. We're all facing it now. We've all got, you know, capitalism is capitalism. Globalization is like a big train, get on or get run over. And when you have an emerging economy of a billion people, roughly, like in India and like in China, you kind of have this appetite to catch up with the developed world and we'll deal with environmental problems later. Is that some part of the reality? That is definitely part of the reality. And it is it is a real question because, I mean, when I looked at some of those numbers, like India has been on this economic boom. We just keep hearing about it. It's a blossoming economy and it's just we hear about the IT boom and we hear about the wealthy big houses being built in Mumbai. But the reality when you look at the numbers are really much more troubling, where you have 60% of the people don't have access to clean water and a quarter don't have electricity, like large, large swaths of the population. My sense is, and I keep thinking of India and China together, is that the government and the the people pushing for this economic growth can almost plow under the majority of their people and it becomes a big compost pile for the elites and the middle class to rise up. But you may have 100 million people in your new middle class and 100 million people that can afford to go to Europe now, but you still have 500, 700, 800 million people who are really uh, underdeveloped still, in poverty. Yeah, that's absolutely true because the numbers are so big, you know, 1.2 billion. We're looking at India actually outpacing China as the most populous nation within seven years. So we're talking about, yeah, a lot of humanity being in this one place. And you're absolutely right that those numbers can be deceptive about the development. Your book, A River Runs Again, is talking about India's 
environmental crisis. And you set it up with the five elements that come out of Sanskrit teaching. Tell us about these elements just very briefly before we get into the specifics. Sure. Um, so the, the five elements are known as the Pancha Mahabhuta, and they are earth, water, fire, air, and ether. And ether is this ephemeral everything in between everything else. So I, I took a little creative license as a, a, making that an opportunity to talk about population. Okay, so let's get right into the easy one to get our brains around, Earth. <laughs> Earth. Now, when you think of India's environmental challenges and Earth... How did you use that as a springboard for dealing with this? What I decided to focus on, and this again links back to the work that I was doing uh, in rural Oregon, was I looked at organic agriculture. And this was happening really in India as a direct response to the Green Revolution. Because the Green Revolution, when I was a kid, that was just like, all right, hundreds of millions of people who would be starving are now have plenty of food. But it seems like we were doing a little end around on nature here to get too much out of the land. You hit it exactly on the head. That is the thing, is that it worked really, really well when it was first implemented in the 60s. Yeah. You know, you dump all these amazing fertilizers and pesticides, and suddenly everything seems like it's just growing gangbusters. You dump tons of water on it, and it, it does produce those yields. Does the land get addicted to this then? The land gets both addicted and spent, because it's just right. like running something exhaustion. At, at exhaustion, pure exhaustion. And so now, 40 years after the Organic. Green Revolution began, it's they're trying to figure out how to bring the soil back to life. Sustainability. Long term. Mm-hmm. Is there corporate financial interests that help skew the um, reason of a society struggling like this when it comes to yeah. soil addicted to chemicals? Yeah. I mean, I went to India looking for individual stories and meeting a lot of people on the ground, but the idea behind the book was that I was balancing that out with some real hard scientific research. And so I was talking to scientists, I was reading academic papers, I was doing a lot of deep research to find out if what I was hearing from, say, a farmer in Punjab telling me that organic soil smells better translates to anything that means that we can actually rely on this to feed humanity, right? Because this, this is the question. Would, would we starve if we switched to these more sustainable methods? And the science is backing it up that you can use a lot fewer inputs and then implement some of these sustainable so techniques. So you're not, you're not just some hippie farmer from Oregon <laughs> going over there telling him to go organic. I might have been deeply a hippie farmer at one point in my life, and I might have still my some mud between my toes, <laughs> but I'm definitely intrigued by what the science says. So there is a recognition that the, the quote, green revolution needs to be relooked at, and I'm sure they're not going to be... Uh, regressive about this, but they're going to be thinking more honest and more sustainability. And that is an issue. I mean, that's the hope. But you brought up the question of corporate interest, and that Mm -hmm. is huge. It's a $30 billion industry. There's a lot of money at stake, and it's a lot of money being controlled by like eight companies. Is most of the farmland in India agribusiness, like giant corporations? No. Or is it, it's more family farms, isn't Definitely it? Fa- so you've yes, got a lot of farms. people who are living month to month, probably with their paychecks, that can be susceptible to clever marketing and advertising by a big organization selling chemicals. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mira Subramanian, and her book is called A River Runs Again, How India is Dealing with Its Environmental Challenges, A Billion Point two, is that right? Twelve? One point two. Last count. A thousand two hundred million people. Let's move on to the next element in your Sanskrit structure, and that would be water. Water. So water took me to Rajasthan, which is a a semi-arid landscape. It's in the south of New Delhi, a a few hours in the center part of the country. And this was an area that was always dry, and they were always very dependent on erratic monsoon rains. But over the past 40 years or so, the rivers had basically... Seasonal rivers had just stopped flowing, the wells had gone dry, and and the land, they couldn't farm it anymore. They couldn't farm it, they couldn't sustain their livestock. The monsoon patterns have changed? 
I was hearing from people that the monsoon patterns have changed and some of the science shows that they have become more erratic. What seems to be happening is more drought followed by heavier rains in really concentrated... So even in monsoon country, weather can be more violent and that'll be a problem. Absolutely. Because I remember one of the most happy times for me in India was hitchhiking on a truck going through Rajasthan after the floods and the floods were here and the the crops will be bringing us food. Yeah. They celebrated the flooding, but now it's, it's even beyond that, huh? It seems to be, I mean, similar to what we're seeing here in the U.S. And and I saw a lot of parallels for what I experienced on the ground in India, very similar to what I'm experiencing in the U.S. in terms of drought and changing climate patterns. tell us about the Rain Man of Rajasthan you write about. Yeah, so I I went to a place where a man named Rajendra Singh started an organization that was focused on basically just building very small check dams all across the landscape. And the idea was those monsoon rain comes, they're very ephemeral, let's just make them pause just long enough that they seep down and kind of start replenishing the aquifers. Because that is the struggle, isn't it? When you get, it's not how much rain do you get, is does it come too fast to be absorbed into the land and just wash away? And suddenly the precious liquid is a negative because it washes away the topsoil. Exactly. You've got both, like you lose the water and mm. you lose the soil at the same time unless you so, catch so it. The Rain Man of Rajasthan is tempering the more violent weather by making small dams, and that's a practical uh, It's It seems to be working. They've been in place now for 25 or 30 years. They've done them all across the landscape, so we're talking about thousands of little dams. Wow. Okay, let's mm-hmm. go to the next element, fire. Fire. What's that have to do with the environment? Fire. So when I was talking about those troubling numbers, one of them is that that 66% of Indians are still relying on just biomass. That's wood. To cook their food and feed their kids. Yeah, every day. And so the health implications of that are huge, mostly falling on the shoulders of women and children who are standing around this fire. there's one tree standing, that tree's endangered because people need to start a little fire. Yeah, yeah. And then without a tree, the violent rain comes and you got more of that topsoil problem. Right. So you're losing trees, you're losing forestation, and the the inhalation of the smoke is a major killer worldwide. So fuel-efficient wood cook stoves actually is a a very important innovation. It is a very important innovation, but it was a little more complicated on how well these stoves are being adopted by the women that that they're being marketed to. What is the uh, kind of fuel that they use? They use anything they've got. That's the thing. If because my understanding is yeah. cow pies are a big deal. They use cow pies. Um, I saw walls just covered with them, you know, that people were drying them out. In a land without trees. It is fuel, yeah. And there is trees. Actually, India has more trees and wood biomass than, than some places in, say, sub-Saharan Africa. So mm-hmm. they're a little bit better off in parts of India in that respect. And they've got field waste, and they're burning coconut fronds. They literally anything that you can burn. Next uh, element would be air. Air. So this is actually where the book began. It was um, when I, as just a magazine journalist, I worked on a a piece for Virginia Quarterly Review about a catastrophic vulture decline that was happening in South Asia that began in the 90s. And that was a, they just, they had no idea why all these birds were dying. A catastrophic vulture decline. I mean, a very simplistic approach to environment is, oh, vultures are just ugly I know, I know. Vultures get a tough rap. People don't appreciate this jigsaw (laughs) puzzle of uh, the weave of the environment. Yeah, it's kind of like if all the garbage guys go on strike, that's what happened. So why are the vultures uh, declining? It ended up being a very common painkiller that humans have taken for decades, and farmers started giving it to their livestock. And then when the vultures come to clean up those dead carcasses, as vultures do, you know, without any thanks from us, they just stopped coming. And for whatever reason, if they eat on one of these animals that's been treated with the drug, oh. the vulture dies. And that's an unintended consequence Completely. of this uh, chance to keep your livestock healthy. And the way you just described vultures as a uh, 
imagine if the garbage man went on strike. Suddenly, I'm thinking really fondly of my pack of vultures. Right, up down, right. Know? Andrew Garbage Man. You know, all these <laughs> you underappreciated people in our lives, well, right? And creatures. People with, uh, right. You know, sharing uh, limited resources, you have to work together. Mira Subramanian has written A River Runs Again. She's written it to tell the world about the real ways people are dealing with India's environmental problems and finding grassroots solutions for living in a crowded world. Her book's available in India also, under the title Elemental India, The Natural World in a Time of Crisis and Opportunity. Mira's also an editor for the online magazine of religion, culture, and politics called Killing the Buddha. When you thought about all of this, how did the caste system work into your your education? Yeah, that did come up within um, one of the other ramifications of the vultures being gone is that the Parsis, which is a small religious group mostly based in Mumbai, they have this sky burial for thousands of years. They've laid out their bodies for the for the vultures to consume, not believing in cremation nor burial. Right. And um, so they're really struggling as a as a religious group to figure out what to do. Wow, what so that next. was their version of ashes to ashes. Yeah. Back into nature, the vultures eat yep, you. Yep, real ecological, real ecological yeah. means of disposal until there's no vultures. Until there's no vultures. And that's because of the medication given to the animals. In yeah. The second, the second degree yep. kind of impact. And even kind of sadly, it might have been by some of the drug being given to the Parsis themselves that the vultures were feeding on. What it must have been a fun challenge for you when you're writing your book, uh, A River Runs Again, the interwovenness of all of this. It was like an investigative puzzle. Absolutely. And, can, and I loved that about it? the five elements is that they just bled into each other so messily. Like you can't talk about organic agriculture without talking about earth and water. And you can't talk about fire without talking about women's issues, which is Well, then let's get into leading us ether. <laughs> ether, the last one. It's easy to understand earth, water, fire, and air. But ether is... What is it again? Ether is, um, akash is the, is the Sanskrit word, and it, it basically is everything between everything else. It's the intangibles of the world. And so I, I felt like I could just take that, I could take creative license with that and um, so talk about... men and women living together and dealing with uh, sexual issues. And yeah, so, so I wanted to look at specifically at population, because no matter, you know, when we talk about this collision of population with, with natural resources, how many people are alive on the earth that need to be fed and clothed and housed is a part of the equation. So, so yeah, so for that story, I went to Bihar, which is up in the Northeast and is one of the most populated states uh, with really high birth rates and really young brides. Is it a poor state? Yeah, it is quite poor. If you're poor, having your, your daughter be married young, there's still the dowry system. It's not supposed to be in place, but it still is. And so a poor person might not be able to wait until their daughter is the proper legal age of 18 because it's more expensive. The dowry becomes higher and it... So there's all these complicated economic reasons that play into it. And explain to our listeners the brutal nature of the dowry if you're not a wealthy person. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, you know, I mean, I, I think about right now, even in the U.S., the tradition is that the bride's family pays for the, the wedding and stuff. So there's some parallels there about who is kind of carrying the economic burden of these unions. But it once was just a small gift. You know, the daughter's parents would send her to her new family with a little help. Um, and it was as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like economically it has become this huge thing where to suddenly the there's really a price tag on on the bride. And a poor man will pray to have a son rather than a daughter just because having too many daughters will it costs money. Yeah. impoverish the family. Yeah, Fascinating stuff. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Mira Subramanian. 
And this is a classic Indian name, isn't it? It Subramanian. is. It is. Is that from a certain region? Um, it's from the south. It's my father is from uh, Chennai, which is the major city in the mm-hmm. south, and so. Um, are there more syllables in the names in the south? There are. It seems to me, in my, in my <laughs> anecdotal experience in India, the farther south you go, it just seems like there's yes. more syllables. And the book is A River Runs Again. And uh, how India is dealing with its environmental challenges. And you've got 1.2 billion people living in one subcontinent, all with needs. And with globalization, there's more appetite for material things. And uh, in, your, in your studies of India, how does climate change impact the subcontinent? It wove through all of the stories in different ways. Definitely with the organic, ag- with agriculture in general, climate change is changing crop yields, higher temperatures. Um, the cook stoves cause this huge climate. There's a huge climate impact, not just the health impact of the woman sitting over a smoky fire, but all that soot that goes up into the air is causing major climate impacts and soot is landing in the Himalayas and exacerbating that melting that's happening up there with glaciers. So, Climate change was running through everything. And did you find that the government is tuned into the the challenge of this? Did you find there was a resistance among the uh, industrial class? Or, or what's the sort of take on climate change in India? Yeah, I mean, India is, because they have so many developmental lags that they're really trying to address in terms of getting energy and water to people, they are sort of saying that they're going to do certain things with climate commitments, but then in the reality, they really are just blazing forward and saying that they have the right to. And what I came out of the research for this book was thinking that this is not mutually exclusive. There are ways to develop that are more sustainable. Like worldwide, we're all figuring this out. Renewable energies are becoming cheap, sometimes mm-hmm. more efficient than than going down the coal-fired power plant. In route. India, being what, the world's third largest producer of carbon emissions, mm. uh, they're, they're a player in this. But you know, we have to, in the first world, we have to remember the people in the third world, they just, they're just trying to get themselves uh, a motor scooter or yeah, a car. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's going to be quite a challenge. Mira, it's been so interesting talking to you, and your book is titled A River Runs Again. Is that a hopeful thing? What, what kind of hope do you see uh, from India? Is it going to lead the world into trouble or out of it? Or, or what do you see after your studies? Yeah, I, I came out of just such intensive research and reporting with a lot of cautionary tales, a lot of troubling stories, but also just feeling like they are at this moment where something really amazing could happen and they in India could embrace what I describe as the model of the micro, like take all these small farms and take microgrid renewable systems and start implementing these these strategies on a small scale across the landscape so they have this amazing cumulative effect. And you could transform the model of development for the world. India could do that. That's hopeful right there. Yeah. Mira Subramanian, the book A River Runs Again. Thanks a lot for sharing what you've learned and uh, best wishes in your, in your future writing and studies of India. Thank you so much for having me. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to KPCC Pasadena for studio help this week. Rick has recorded walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com for a link to Rick's audio tour app. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves.
Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travellers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries, all designed to make Europe's rich history and great art come to life. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.